Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Okay, I'm going to start something different this morning. A lot different from what I normally do. So I'm either going to completely put you to sleep or you're going to be tremendously enriched and blessed. I hope to accomplish the second and not the first. I want to bless you. Amen. I believe it's God's will uh, for me to do this. And I, so I'm going to move into the area of theology and I'm going to teach you uh, Bible doctrine, a Bible doctrine. But before we can get into that, we have to lay some foundation as to the importance of Bible doctrine. What is Bible doctrine? What is theology? What is religion? All of these things like that, okay? So, uh, if you'll pray for me, I believe God will anoint me. If he anoints me, you won't go to sleep, okay? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Both the Jew, the book of Jude, which is the book that leads us into the book of Revelation, and we see there in the book of Jude, verse 3, Jude says it this way, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for, say with me, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Amen. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing, Lord to be upon the reading of your holy word. We give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right, as we begin to teach you on theology, the area of Bible doctrine, it is important for us to do that because there's so many doctrines out there. And there's so many cults. There's so many isms. There's so many uh, false churches, so on and so forth that are out there. So it's very important for us to understand doctrine. The Bible says we are to contend for the faith which was once and literally for all delivered to the saints. So there's not many faiths. There are There is one faith. And we are to contend for that one faith. So if there are many faiths in the world today, that means that the majority of them, in fact all of them except one faith, is inaccurate. So we need to know uh, what uh, Bible doctrine is. What is theology? What's the importance of it? Amen. Say praise the Lord. So we're going to get into that uh, this morning. Let's go over to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55 and 9. Isaiah 55 and 9. I had a little Bible study with you this morning. All right. 9 through 11. scripture says for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it to bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater all right, so God's word, he says, is like rain that comes down. And what does it produce? 
seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, the sower is the teacher. All right, so if somebody's going to teach you, they have to have, uh, if they're a sower, they have to have seed. And the word of God is the seed. So the teacher is the sower, and he has the seed that he spreads. And the eater is the one that is taught. It is the student. Okay? So when God's word is, word is going forth, that is being taught, the sower is sowing the seed, and the eater is eating the bread. Okay? So I'm sowing the seed when I preach the word of God to you, and then when you receive that, you are the eater of the bread. So the teacher sows the seed, the student eats the bread. All right, look at it again, please, in verse 10. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Those two things. Seed for the sower, the teacher, and bread for the eater, that is the student. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sin it. First Timothy 4. First Timothy 4 and verse 1 says this, The Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, how many of y'all believe we're in the latter times? Some shall depart from the faith. Notice again, it's the faith. It's one faith. They will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Okay, so we have the faith, the Bible says, uh, in the scripture. Now in verse 16, it says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. So is doctrine important? Yes. What is doctrine? It's the teaching of God's word. Okay. It's literally the word doctrine means to teach. But when we talk about doctrine in the Christian faith, we're talking about the teaching of God's word. Okay. So it tells us here in verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine or the teaching teachings of the Christian faith, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So is doctrine important? Is teaching important? It is. Why? Because it says if you continue in them, it's going to save you and them that hear you. So doctrine is very important, is it not? Okay. Now, doctrine, as I said, means simply something that is taught or to teach. And it has to do with the truths of God's word. Acts 2.42. Now going back there. Go there. Read that to begin with. What doctrine are we to continue in? Right. Okay. The apostles' doctrine. Their teaching. Acts 2.42. The scripture says they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Or the apostles teaching very important isn't it that we do that and if we're going to do that we need to know what they taught okay and they continue steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers 
you. So somebody comes to you and they say, well, what kind of church do you go to? What do you believe? Well, you could say this. You can say, I'm classical Pentecostal. What is a classical Pentecostal? Anybody have any idea what a classical Pentecostal is? It's somebody that has their roots back to Azusa Street. Okay? Now, sometimes the Trinitarian Pentecostals, sometimes they're well, you know, they're called the Assemblies of God, different names, but they're Trinitarian Pentecostals. They say that they are the true classical Pentecostals. Okay? But really, that's not true because through history, they've changed in so many ways that they cannot identify themselves as classical Pentecostals. All right? The true classical Pentecostal then, and some people say that we can't be classical Pentecostals, which means oneness Pentecostals, can't be classical Pentecostals, but we are. We are classical Pentecostals because we can find our roots back to Azusa Street and we teach the doctrines of the apostles. So we are classical Pentecostal. Pentecostal is not so much a denomination as it is an experience. So when you say I'm a Pentecostal or an apostolic, you're not saying that you're a denomination. There are some Pentecostals that are in denominations. But if somebody asks you, what, what are you? You can say I'm classical Pentecostal. Our roots go back to Azusa Street, the latter-day outpouring of the Holy Ghost, where they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues. Amen? Okay. And from there, doctrines, uh, you know, were established. They saw the oneness of God. Oneness Pentecostal saw the oneness of God. They saw the necessity of being baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and being filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. So if you're a classical Pentecostal then, what does that mean? Your roots are back to Azusa Street. They start there as far as the latter-day rain outpouring of the Spirit is concerned. Amen? And it means that you're filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues, and you're water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe in the oneness of God. Okay? And as I said, there are a lot of Pentecostal groups that will claim to be classical, but really we are classical Pentecostals. You understand that? Why? Not just because we have our roots in Azusa Street, but because we go all the way back to the teaching of the apostles, which the church was founded on the day of what? Pentecost. So if we experience the same experience they did on the day of Pentecost, amen, and we teach what the apostles taught on the day of Pentecost, that makes us true classical Pentecostals. Okay, say amen. So really, Pentecost is an experience. That means you've been filled with the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues. It's not a denomination. I'm Pentecostal this morning, not because I'm a part of a denomination. I'm Pentecostal because I've experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I'm apostolic because I teach the doctrine of the apostles. So really, to be honest with you, uh, as Johnny James said, I heard him say a long time ago, he said, you can't be a true Pentecostal without being apostolic. Okay? You can't be a true Pentecostal if you don't teach the doctrine of the apostles. So we are true Pentecostals. We are true classical Pentecostals in, in every sense of the word because we're Pentecostal in experience, not denomination, but experience. I have received the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, 
and I'm apostolic because I continue to teach the apostles' doctrine. Amen? So you're looking at an apostolic Pentecostal preacher. Not because I'm a part of the denomination. I'm not. But because of the experience I have and the doctrine I teach. Say praise the Lord. Now, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, speak with other tongues, and you have obeyed Acts 2.38, then you are a Pentecostal apostolic. You're an apostolic Pentecostal. Classical Pentecostal. Does that make sense? So if you're trying to identify yourself as to what you are, now you know what you are. But I, like Johnny James says, I do not believe that you can be a true Pentecostal without being apostolic. Because the apostles were Pentecostal. Correct? Not denomination. We need to get rid of these denominational hang-ups. All right? Because really, denomination, if you're part of denomination, it's where your experience stops most of the time. Amen? So get rid of the labels. Get rid of the denominational stuff. Just get in the Bible and understand who you are biblically. Your, your life, your church, your teaching is after the prototype of the apostles. You can find your church in the book of Acts. And a lot of churches cannot say that. They cannot say that they can find their church in the book of Acts. So if you're talking to somebody that's in a church, it doesn't matter what church they're in. Ask them the question, can you find your church in the book of Acts? If they can't find their church in the book of Acts, they are not the true church of Jesus Christ. I can find my church in the book of Acts. Really? Yeah. Because I preach and teach the exact same the apostles thing the apostles taught. And I've experienced the new birth according to the book of Acts. So I can find my church in the book of Acts. You want to witness to somebody that's in, you know, a different church and say, can you find your church in the book of Acts? Just ask them that one question. So they might say, yes, I think I can. Oh, so you preach the same thing the apostles preach? No. Uh, do you, have you been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost like on the day of Pentecost? No. Then you can't find yourself, your experience, or your church in the book of Acts. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me? I'm glad today I can find my church in the book of Acts. And I... My experience lines up with the Word of God. I don't try to take the Word of God and make it fit with my experience. My experience lines up with the Word of God. Okay, so Acts 2.42, it tells us, and they continued, who? The church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Say praise the Lord. I'm thankful today that the church I'm a part of is after the prototype in the book of Acts. Say amen. It's perfect. It's exactly like the pattern as far as New Testament salvation is concerned. How many sowers out there? How many ladies out there sow? You buy patterns. You lay out the fabric on the pattern and you cut the pattern out. No? You don't do any of that? All right. Well, when you lay a pattern out... Say amen. You lay the pattern out, that's the prototype. Then you cut the, uh, the pattern out, you know, in the clothing, and that's the genotype. When you get the cloth, that's the genotype. 
prototype is the pattern and the cloth is the genotype. And they're going to match exactly. They're going to be identical. They're going to be the same. Say amen. So our church here in Bible Center Fellowship, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I can boast in the Lord. I can tell you that this church is patterned after that early New Testament church. I don't have to worry about if my church is teaching and preaching the truth. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm in the right church. Because I can go back to the early New Testament church and I can see the pattern that was laid out there. And, okay, so are we identical to that? Do we teach and preach the same thing? Have we experienced the same thing? See, I'm getting excited this morning. I can find my experience and I can find my church in the book of Acts, in the New Testament. That's how you know if you're in the right church. Do they preach what the apostles preach? If they don't, you need to get out of that church and you need to find a church where they do. Amen. Even if it's not this one. You come here and you don't like this church. That's fine. Amen. You don't like our methods or whatever. But you're still going to have to find yourself an apostolic Pentecostal church. Somebody that patterns their church after that New Testament church. So I'm thankful today. Amen. So it says, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking bread and prayers. And that's what we've done through the years, over 20 years. We've continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread. Say amen. All right. So doctrine is something that is taught and uh, basically deals with the truths of the Christian faith. Now, theology. What does theology mean? That big old word everybody likes. That big word, theology. I love big words. Don't you like big words? Theology, theos. The Greek word theos is what we get our English word God from. So theos, God. You with me? Logos means word. So what we have is when you say theology, it's not just a college word. It's a biblical word. It means a study of God or the study of God, Theos God, and Logos Word. So when you talk about theology, you're talking about the study of God or the science of God. Amen. And it's more than just talking about God Himself, but it has to do with all the doctrines of the Christian faith. That's what theology is. Theos God, Logos Word. Big, big word, but it, it has a simple meaning. All right? Say amen. So what is doctrine? Something that is taught. Teaching, correct? What is theology? Is the study of God or the doctrines that are in the Christian faith? Really from, from Old Testament to New Testament. Now then what is religion then? You ever heard people talk about religion? How many religious people out there? Well, a lot of times when I preach and I talk to you about religion, I, I bring the negative side of it. And I say, well, we're not religious in, in the negative sense of the word. Religion can mean man's effort, his own effort, to try to be right with God. It's trying, man trying to tie himself back to God his own way. Now, that, that religion, that word religion is not a good religion man in his own effort trying to be right with God. But religion is not just 
uh, man's effort, but it has to do with your worship or your devotion to God. Now, it can be any God. Religion, you can be a worshiper or devoted to any false God out there and be religious. So in a sense, we are religious and we're part of a religion in the sense that we are devoted and we worship a God. For us, it's the one true God of the Bible. Okay, so that's what religion means. It means to devote, to be devoted, or to worship a supreme deity. It has to do with your action. It's living it. Does it make sense? Theology has to do with what you think about God. But religion has to do with the way you live that knowledge. All right? So if you say you're a religious person, what you're saying to that person in the truest sense of the word is that you're a worshiper of God, that you are devoted to God. You are saying that you put what you believe into action. And that's the positive, positive side of religion. So every one of us this morning need to be religious in the sense that we worship and we're devoted to the true God and we practice what we believe theology. So theology is the teaching of God's Word. It's what you think about the Lord. Religion is putting that teaching, that knowledge of God into your living. That's religion. Okay, everybody with me? So doctrine is something that is taught. Theology is the study of God, the science of God. Religion is putting that into practice. Well, like I told you, I'm going to put you completely to sleep, or you're going to be tremendously enriched tonight, today. So how many are going to sleep right now? Good. Nobody yet. Amen. Now, it's, it's, it's not a boring subject. I love it. But to get up and try to teach it to the church... That's a big challenge. And I've asked a lot, I've asked for prayer already. Some people, y'all pray for me because I'm doing something. Normally I just get in the Word and I just preach the Word, but I'm teaching you theology today. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Now, I'm really going to bore you now. And uh, so I'm going to read a few things uh, out of this book. This is by Thiessen, Lectures on Systematic Theology. Now, I don't agree with everything he says because... He's not accurate when it comes to the, uh, the Trinity, but he's got a lot of good things to say. Amen. So you're going to kind of, when you eat theology or you read books, you got to eat the grapes and spit out the seeds. Okay? So uh, I eat the grapes and I spit out the seeds. If I read false doctrine or something that's not accurate, or maybe it's dogma, and dogma is man's opinion. If I read dogma, it can be good and it can be bad. So sometimes when I'm reading dogma, man's opinion, uh, I'll spit out that dogma because it's not accurate. But I'll eat the, eat the grapes. So anytime you study or you read different books, you have to be like that. You have to eat the grapes and spit out the seeds. When I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, you got to eat the grapes and spit out the seeds. Because sometimes you get seeds from me. Okay, so just, just eat the grapes, spit out the seed. Amen. Now, you can't pick and choose what you want to believe if it's in the Bible. But if it's in my opinion and you don't agree with the opinion, just spit it out. That's what I do when I read uh, theological books. Okay? Eat the grapes and spit out the seeds. 
but you also have to have a theologically filtered, filter-tipped mind. Because when you start reading some of these books, like from Thesen, he's got a lot of good things to say. But if you don't have a filter-tipped brain, theologically filter-tipped brain, it can mess you up. So you have to have some knowledge before you get into some of these writings because it will confuse you. You have to have a filter. If you don't have a filter, man, everything that you read, that must be right because it's in black and white. Well, just because it's in black and white, don't make it right. And just because he's got a big old double-jointed name, doctor, you know, a doctorate of theology or whatever, double-jointed titles, and everything, don't make him accurate. Don't make him right. Praise the Lord. The only infallible thing that we have in the church, okay, now with the Spirit of God is infallible, but is this Bible. It's infallible. That means any book you read can be fallible. It can have error in it. The church is not infallible either. Ooh, uh-oh. If you start thinking your church is infallible, that means it has absolutely no error in it, then you move into the area of Catholicism. They say that they're the infallible teachers of God's Word, that they are without error at the church. So that in order for you to be saved, you have to be a part of that system. Okay? Say praise the Lord. The church, as I look at you, you're not infallible. This is infallible. You don't have an infallible pastor. This is infallible. Say praise the Lord. Everything that we believe, everything that we teach must line up with the authority of God's word. If it doesn't line up with the authority of God's word, then we throw it out. We spit the seed out. Amen. But we keep the good. So what's the only infallible thing that we have? It's the Word of God. It's not your pastor. It's not your church. It's not your denomination for sure. It's only God's Word. Everything has to line up with the Word of the Lord. Even your pastor has to line up with the Word of God. The Pope is supposed to line up with the Word of God. And someday I'll talk to you about some of the teachings of this new Pope that's rising up. Everybody's really excited about him, you know. So I really need to, need to go to the Word of God. We need to uncover some of this stuff. Okay. Okay, so anyway, praise the Lord. Let me get back to this big old theological book. So anyway, praise the Lord. When you, when you get into this stuff, what do you do? Eat the grapes and what? Spit out the seeds. Not just the books you read. Any message you hear preached on the radio or you see on television. Eat the grapes, spit out the seeds. How are you going to know what's seed and what's grapes? By knowing that Bible. Amen? How many filter, theologically filter-tipped minds do I have out there? Well, I better have some. I've been preaching to some of you for 20 years. You better have some knowledge, you know. You hear somebody preaching or teaching, now, that's not right. I know that's not right. How do you know? Because pastor told me. No, because pastor preached it out of the Bible. Right? Amen. Okay, so let me get back to this. Right, so I'm giving you a few examples, right? Eat the grapes, spit out the seeds. You have to have a, a theologically filter-tipped mind. That's what Brother Dice used to teach us when he talked about theology. So you have to have a theologically filter-tipped mind when you read books. Okay? Say amen. Third thing is when you are going to determine a counterfeit, how can you decide what's a counterfeit and what's true? 
That's right. When they teach a person in the banking world about counterfeits, they don't show them a counterfeit bill. They show them the real bill. Are you with me? They're very familiar with the real bill. It's texture, what's on it, different colors, various things, so that if a false bill comes across them, they know this is not the real thing. It's a counterfeit. Because they know the real bill so well they can detect the counterfeit. Say amen. Okay, so you got those three things. What are you going to do with books and preaching that you hear? Eat the grapes, spit out the seed. What kind of mind you got to have? A theologically filter-tipped mind. How are you going to know what's truth and what's error? By studying the truth. Having said that, now I can read to you from Ephesians 3. All right, you ready? Everybody get your blankets out. Get your pillows out. Put you to sleep. I love it. You guys might not. I love it. I live for this stuff. Man. Okay. All right. Theology and ethics. Now, there's a difference between theology, okay, ethics, religion, philosophy, so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about what is the difference between theology and ethics. Number one, psychology. Say psychology. How many of y'all like psychology? Don't, I'm not even going to look at you. Well, you don't know because you, a lot of times we don't even know what psychology is. I'm explaining to you what theology is, the study of God or the science of God. But what is psychology? Do you, do you realize that the problem that the church has is... is, is uh, it's with, with philosophy. It's with philosophy. That's the church problem the church has. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Now watch. Psychology deals with behavior. Ethics with conduct. This is true of both physiolo uh, uh, philosophical and Christian ethics. Okay? Did you catch that? Psychology deals with behavior ethics with conduct. This is true of both uh, philosophical and Christian ethics. Psychology inquires after the how and why of behavior. Ethics after the moral quality of conduct. Okay, you with me so far? Christian ethics differ greatly from philosophical ethics. It is more comprehensive in that while philosophical ethics, which is what? It's conduct, correct? Is confined to duties between man and man, Christian ethics, conduct, also includes duties toward God. Furthermore, it is different in its motivation. In philosophical ethics, the motive is either that of hedonism, well, I'm not even going to get into all that because we don't need that. Okay. okay, in Christian ethics, the motive is that of affection for and willing submission to God. Let me back up just a little bit, all right? Motivation for uh, philosophical ethics, basically, they get about three or four big old words. It has to do with humanism. So philosophy deals with man's relationship to man, and it's more humanistic in its approach. Christian ethics, the motives of that of affection for and willing submission to God. Right? 
Okay. Theology, uh, theology and religion. To be religious is to be aware or conscience of the existence of a supreme being and to live in light of the demands of the supreme being. The Christian religion is restricted to biblical Christianity. The true religion, which is set forth in the Holy Scriptures, it is the awareness of the true God and our responsibility to Him. Amen? Y'all believe that? In theology, a man organizes his thoughts concerning God and the universe, and in religion, he expresses in attitudes and actions the effects these thoughts have produced in him. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Theology and philosophy. All right, here we go. But while theology begins with the belief in the existence of God and the idea that he is the cause of all things excepting sin, philosophy begins with some other given thing and the idea that it is sufficient to explain the existence of all other things from some ancient ancients. These things are water, air, or fire. For others, it has been mind or ideas. For still others, it has been nature, personality, life, or some other thing. Theology does not merely begin with the belief in the existence of God, but also holds that he has graciously revealed himself. That's revelation. That's awesome. Philosophy denies both these ideals. From the idea of God and the study of the divine revelation, the theologian develops his world and life view from the living, from, oh, excuse me, from the thing given and the supposed powers inherent in it. The philosopher develops his world and life view. Excuse me, I did not read very well. Okay, all right. Philosophy denies both these ideas. And what is that? the existence of God, and that he has revealed himself. Philosophy denies both these ideas. From the idea of God and the study of the divine revelation, the theologian develops his world in my view. From the thing given, that goes back to the air, the fire, uh, the water, all of those other things. From the thing given and supposed powers inherent in it, the philosopher develops his world and life view. Okay, did y'all get that? Okay, so we're talking about the difference between philosophy, theology and philosophy. All right, philosophy is to the unbeliever what the Christian faith is to the believer. And the unbeliever adheres to it with the same tenacity with which the believer adheres to his faith. To know a man's philosophy is therefore to get possession of the key to understand him and also to dealing with him. Acts 14, 17, 17, 22 through 31. But the Christian must recognize that philosophy will never bring a person to Christ. Paul writes, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. And again, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. We speak God's wisdom, the wisdom which none of the world rulers of this age understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Y'all see that? Okay, say praise the Lord. 
doctrine, theology, and religion, and the differences between uh, psychology, ethics, religion, theology. Okay, now, in the area of theology, let me break it down for you. There's different types of theology. Number one, exegesis. What is exegesis? You come to theology. The theology of exegesis, what is that? Good. Okay. Eisegete, to eisegete the scripture theologically means you're reading into the Bible things that are not there. Okay. We don't want to do that. We don't want to eisegete the Bible. That means when I come to the Bible, I don't want to have my mind already made up and read into it things that are not there. That's eisegeting. That's reading into it. Exegeting. The word exegete means to uh, to bring forth, okay, to bring forth or to lead out or to draw out. So when you come to the scripture, don't bring preconceived ideas. Read the Bible and draw out of the Bible what it's saying, okay? But you exegete it, you're, you're drawing out from the text. You're letting it speak, okay? All right. So exegesis is to lead out, to draw out the interpretation of the scriptures. You talk about exegesis, you talk about interpreting the Bible. And the way you interpret it is, is drawing out of the text itself, not leading into the text. Eisegesis. Okay? Everybody awake? Interpretation of the scripture. And this particular type of theology deals with languages, archaeology, biblical introduction, and hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just a big word that means the laws of interpretation. When you come to the Word of God, there are laws that govern its interpretation. For example, one of them is the law of first mention. Alright, so if you don't know what something means, for example, in the book of Revelation, you got this woman riding on the back of a scarlet colored beast, and that woman's called Mystery Babylon. Well, hermeneutics, which is the interpretation of the laws of Scripture, says, okay, I don't know who this woman is. I know her name. Her name is Mystery Babylon. She's called Babylon, but in mystery form. So I have to go back to the first time Babylon is mentioned in the Bible, and I have to study that in order to understand who Mystery Babylon is in the Revelation. It's called the law of first mention. There's a lot of different laws that govern the interpretation of Scripture. I mean, there are books that thick just written on hermeneutics. Okay? with me? Alright, so when you talk about exegesis then, what are you dealing with? Interpretation of Scripture, you're drawing out of the text what it means. It primarily deals with languages, archaeology, the introduction of the Bible, and hermeneutics. Those four things. Okay? Then you have historical theology. Historical theology deals with the history of the Bible, the history of the church and the history of the doctrines of the church. That's what historical theology is. Then you have dogmatic theology. Now, have you ever heard of it? You're just dogmatic. That doesn't mean you're a dog. I say, you're dogmatic, doesn't mean you're a dog. You don't say, well, what kind of dog am I? Chow? No. That's not what it means when you say dogmatic theology. Dogma is what man says the Bible says. It's man's statement about the Scripture. It's man's statement about God. 
and normally it's put in what is called creeds. And most of them are inaccurate. Okay, like the Athanasian Creed, uh, uh, the Council of Nicene, the, the, all of these various creeds. I mean, there's a lot of creeds, you know, you, you may be the, the Apostles' Creed is written out the True Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed, right? The Council of Nicaea came up with this creed called the Nicene Creed. The Athanasian Creed, which is a denial of the oneness of God. Those creeds are man, they're dogma. Say amen. So dogma is man's statement of truth set forth as in a creed. So, amen. When you talk about dogma, you're talking about man's opinion of the scripture. It could be correct, but it may be incorrect. Then you have doctrine, God's revelation of truth, uh, which is the true way to approach things. So instead of going dogmatic theology, theology you want to go in doctrine. Doctrine is God's revelation of truth to us. Say amen. Did you hear what I just said? That's important for you. Because if you go to a church and they got all kinds of creeds, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Now, I know a lot about these because I went to a church and I went through catechism. Okay? How many of y'all went through catechism? Anybody here, anybody else in here went through catechism? As a what kind? Lutheran, Catholic? Yeah, I went, I went through it as a Lutheran. Some people go through it as a, as a Catholic, whatever. But I went through catechism. And I had to memorize all those creeds. I had to memorize the Nicene Creed, you know. And uh, I, I'm not sure if I memorized the Apostles' Creed or not. But uh, anyway, these creeds of the church, I had to memorize them before I could become a member of the church. Okay. And the only way I could become a member of the church is if I went through catechism. And catechism taught me the creeds, the dogmas of man, and I had to memorize those creeds. I don't remember them today. That was a long time ago. Have you ever tried to read the creeds of the dogmas of men, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed? They call it the Apostles' Creed, which is not the Apostles' Creed, or the Athanasian Creed. Have you ever tried to read those creeds and make sense of them? They don't make sense. At least they don't to me. They might to you. Maybe you got a theological mind. You can figure out what they're saying. I just can't figure out what in the world they're trying to say. Amen. I, just, I want to go back to the Bible and get into the doctrine. I am a, I'm a graduate of catechism. I want you to know that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not totally ignorant of dogma. Amen. All right. We, then we, so anyway, we want to we stay with doctrine uh, rather than the creeds of men. Man, when you study the Bible, if you bring the creeds of men with you, those creedal glasses, you put those creedal glasses on when you're reading the Bible, you're going to read into the Bible doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not there. You have to put creedal glasses, dogmatic glasses on your eyeballs to see the doctrine of the Trinity. It is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. The, 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 the uh, preachers and teachers of this word, the apostles and the prophets, every one of them were strict monotheistic believers. Strict one God believers. All right? The 
doctrine of the Trinity came from man, from dogma. It came from philosophy. So to see that in the Bible, you have to put the creative glasses on. If you want to understand the Bible correctly, doctrine is what you're after. The revelation of God. Take the creative glasses off and throw them away. Because they will only confuse you. Say amen. When I read the Bible, I don't read the Bible with creative glasses. Y'all know what creedal glasses is, right? Reading through the creeds to interpret the Bible. That's doctrine. Say doctrine. I want doctrine. God's revelation of truth. Then you have biblical theology. Is the progression of truth, biblical theology, from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Biblical theology. It's how God brought progressive revelation to man. God didn't sit down and, and establish a, system, a systematic theology. He didn't, he didn't put everything, like for example, take man and teach everything about man in one place. And they teach the, take the doctrine of God and, and put it in one place and talk about everything about God in one place. He didn't arrange it like that. The Bible is not arranged like that. The Bible is a book of doctrine from Genesis to Revelation. When you study biblical theology, you're going from Genesis to Revelation and you're reading progressive revelation of God to man about given truths. Are you with me? Okay. Systematic theology is to go from Genesis to Revelation and find out what everything God said about that particular subject or topic is in the Bible. You have to arrange systematic theology. You have to arrange the orderly teaching of the Bible on any given topic because God didn't do that for you. He left that for man. See, we want God to arrange his Bible. Okay, oneness of God, chapter one, the oneness of God. And we want God to put everything about the oneness of God in maybe, you know, 20 pages of the Bible, right? And then we want him to be systematic and put everything about man in one chapter or two chapters in the Bible. And he didn't do it that way. Biblical theologists from Genesis to Revelation, God bringing progressive revelation of truth to man about every given topic. But you have to take everything God has said and arrange it in an orderly way called systematic theology. That makes sense. So we talk about biblical theology, then we're talking about the study from Genesis to Revelation of God's, say with me, progressive revelation of truth to man. Simply means this. I find out what Moses said about a subject. Find out what Moses said about the atonement. I go from there, I find out what the prophet said about the atonement. I go from there, I find out what the New Testament says about the atonement. And I put it all together. And I've got what's called systematic theology on that particular subject. Does that make sense? So biblical theology then is the study uh, of various subjects of the Bible progressively given from God to man one person gets a bit of truth, another person gets another little bit of truth, another person gets another little bit of truth, as it's progressively revealed to man throughout the whole Bible. That's biblical theology. Okay? And I like that study. I like that approach. I like to go from Genesis to Revelation. Because the Bible says in Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word rightly dividing literally means to plow a straight line. Okay? 
let me say it again. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or correctly handling it. So when you go from Genesis to Revelation on any given subject, it has to line up with the word. It has to be straight. It can't be like this. If it's like this, you haven't rightly divided it. It has to be straight from Genesis to Revelation. That means there can be no contradictions from Genesis to Revelation on any given subject. Does that help you? Okay. All right, systematic theology then is the orderly arrange arrangement or orderly arranging into topics of various subjects like God, subject, the subject of God. So you're gonna, what does the Bible say about God? Gather all that truth about what the Bible says about God, that's systematic theology. Or angels. Systematic theology is taking everything the Bible says about angels, okay, and putting in an orderly arrangement. Say amen. Or the study of man. Everything the Bible says about man. Or the study of sin. Or the study of demonology. So on and so forth. What does the Bible say about these various topics or subjects arranging it from Genesis to Revelation? That's called systematic theology. The orderly arranging, okay, teaching on various topics in the Bible. God hasn't done that for you. You have to do that. And I have to do that. It is, a it is work to study and teach the Bible. Amen? And, and see, my brother Dice used to say, you know, because this didn't cost you anything, it doesn't mean anything to you. But I will tell you, what I'm teaching you right now, it costs you literally hundreds and possibly thousands of dollars in a Bible class. Okay? I, I got to be careful, because I get offers all the time coming on my computer. You know, buy this teaching. Thousand dollars. Thousand dollars for nine, only nine teachings on theology. You know? And that's pretty cheap compared to some of them. I heard one Bible college, I think Biola, Biola University, you get a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree in Biola University, is almost $200,000. Okay? And what do they teach you? What I'm teaching you right now. But I'm probably not doing as good as they would. But at least I'm trying. Hallelujah. So, you know, put some value on what I'm doing this, this morning. Because I do. Okay, that, that, everybody understands systematic theology. All right, what about practical theology? Well, practical theology has to do with pastoral work. It has to do with taking the teaching of the Bible and applying that. Practical theology, applying that theology to the lives of the believer. Applying the teaching of the Word of God in the area of the new birth in the area of living for God, taking the Word of God and using that to educate the people of God. Okay? The people of God need to be educated. So this is practical theology, education of the people of God. It has to do with taking the Scripture and applying it to the lives of the people of God. And also, it applies to church administration. If you want your church to be run right correctly, you want the administration to be right in the church, you have it has to line up with the word. Okay? So that's what practical theology is. 
practical theology simply to think is a way to stay pastoral, pastoral theology. It's the application of God's work to the lives of the people and the administration of the church. Everybody understand that? Do you care? Good. Because I do. And if you don't care, I'm still going to teach it anyway, so you might as well just, just buckle down and get ready. I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm like the turkey on Thanksgiving Day. I'm committed. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's look at Luke. In Luke chapter 1. What is the purpose of doctrine or the purpose of theology then? Remember, doctrine is something that's taught. It's the Word of God. What is the purpose of it? What is the purpose of theology? The study of God or the science of God. Now, Thiessen calls it not just the study of God, theology. Not just the study of God. Thiessen says it's the science of God. And he says the reason why he calls it the science of God is because it, it, it is a fixed, stable thing. Okay? Something that is fixed. Science is not the problem of the church. Philosophy is the problem of the church. True science is not in competition with the Bible. Amen? So when you say theology is the study of God or the science of God, don't worry about that. It just means something that is fixed. Something that is stable. But Thiessen, Thiessen says that. Now, so what is the purpose of doctrine? The teaching the truths? What is the purpose of theology? The science of God? The study of the doctrines of God? What is the purpose of it? All right, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Okay, did you learn the gospel of Luke? Chapter 1. Okay, ready? Verses 1 through 4. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth. Number one. Luke is saying here that many have taken in hand to set forth. First thing is the purpose of doctrine or teaching of the Christian faith and theology, the study of God and his, his revelation to man. The purpose of it, number one, is to be set forth. That means it's put in a narrative form narrative, alright? What does the true believer believe? Luke is saying we're going to set it forth. We're going to declare it in narrative form. That's his gospel. And what he's going to declare in that gospel is what the true believer believes. Okay? The purpose of it then is to set forth you with me? In order. Say order. There we go. That's systematic theology. To set forth in order, in order, what the true believer believes. Now watch this. He says, a declaration. Say a declaration. So it's a setting forth in order, a declaration. A declaration is something that is spoken. But a declaration is not just something that you begin saying. It's something that you start and you go all the way through until you finish. So Luke is saying the purpose of his writing the gospel is to set forth a narrative form. You with me? In order, a declaration from the start to the end of the gospel until he gets thoroughly finished with his testimony of the life of Jesus. Okay, That's what declaration means. And then he goes on and he says this. 
a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. He said, these are what the true believer believes. And he says, we set them forth in order and we declare them from the start to the finish. This is what the true believer believes. Say amen. He goes on and he said it this way, which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the what? The word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus that thou mightest know the certainty, say the certainty, of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Say instructed. And that word instruction means oral. Alright? So uh, Luke is saying, I'm going to write a narrative. It's going to be in order. It's going to be what the true believer believes. Okay? And I, he said, it's already been instructed to you, but I'm going to give it to you because you, that you may know of a certainty what you have been taught is accurate. Do you see that? Say praise the Lord. That's the purpose of theology. Okay? How many of y'all believe the gospel of Luke? Well, Luke said it in order. This is what the true believer believes. And it's declared from start to finish. Obviously, there's more books in the Bible than Luke, but that's the purpose. Now, sound doctrine. Say with me, sound doctrine. We live in a time right now when people are not enduring sound doctrine. They're into the philosophies of men. I've already declared to you what the philosophies of men are. They don't believe that God exists. They don't believe that God has revealed himself to man. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in eternal judgment. They don't believe any of these things. All right? Some of them believe in the uh, the final restitution of all things, which means eventually everybody's going to be saved and nobody's going to be in hell. That's philosophy of men. Okay. So when we talk about when I when I bring this teaching to you, one of the reasons why I'm doing that is because we live in a time when there are no absolutes. People don't believe in absolutes anymore. Okay? They want to live by their own philosophy, what they think is right. So it's important that we have doctrine so we know what the truth is. So we don't get we don't succumb to the philosophies of men. Because we're living in a time when people are going for philosophies of men. Amen or the doctrines of devils. And those doctrines of devils are taught through men. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Now, some say doctrine is divisive. Have you ever heard anybody say that? You get together and you want to teach somebody a Bible, so they said, I don't want that doctrine. I, the doctrine divides the church. Well, you hear sometimes preachers stand in the pulpit and say, doctrine divides the church. So we're going to stay away from doctrine. You know what they do then? When they stay away from the revelation of God's word, and they go, if they do that, they go to the philosophies of men. They stop preaching the Bible. Because in their mind, they've swallowed the lie, doctrine is divisive. No. Doctrine is never divisive. 
It's the person who rejects the true doctrine of God that divides. Let me say it again. Doctrine, true doctrine, that is the revelation of God, does not is not divisive. The person that doesn't keep it is divisive. Say praise the Lord. So that you need to expose that lie. Somebody comes to you, I don't believe in doctrine. The doctrine divides the church. We need to set our doctrines aside and just love each other. That is philosophy of men. Set aside your doctrine to just love each other. There's a philosophy of men. We're not going to set aside the doctrine of God. No way. We're going to love you. We're not going to set aside the doctrine of God. Praise the Lord. All right. Some other things that I took, I, I, I wrote down and noted. Uh, to have Christ is to have his doctrine. Okay, let's go to John 7, 16. You can't have Jesus Christ without having his doctrine. To have the doctrine of Jesus Christ is to have Jesus Christ. To have Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to have his doctrine. You cannot separate doctrine from him. Jesus is the living word. You cannot separate him from doctrine. All right, let's go to John 7, 16. There. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, oh, Jesus had doctrine. It's interesting. Jesus had doctrine. He said, My doctrine or my teaching, the things that I teach, is not mine, but it, it but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He said, you're going to know the doctrine and you're going to keep the doctrine. Because you can't separate doctrine. He said, my, Jesus said, my doctrine. Look at that. To have Jesus then is to have his doctrine. To have his doctrine is to have Jesus. You only know as much about Jesus. You only know Jesus as much as you know his word. People do that. You say, I know the Lord. I know Jesus. You only know him to the degree that you know his word. Because you can't separate him from his word. Right? It's an ongoing under revelation of knowing Jesus Christ through his word. He's the, he's the uh, living word, logos. Right? We have the written word, grafe, the scripture. The living word, Jesus. Correct? The scripture we have, Grafe, the written word. Correct? Do you understand that today? We have that. The revelation of God to man. You can't separate the two. Okay, do you understand what we're saying? It is an absolute, we absolutely need to have doctrine in our life. We absolutely have to have it. Because if we don't, we will succumb to the philosophies of man and the doctrines of God. Okay. Who we need to know who we believe, what we believe, and why we believe it. Character is what we are, behavior is what we do, and destiny is where we're going. And what you believe 
determine who you are. But who you are determines where you're going to spend eternity. So it's important that we have doctrine because doctrine shapes who we are as a person. And ultimately where we go, destiny wise. Okay, there's three sources of doctrine the Bible reveals to us. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew 16. Three sources of doctrine. Matthew 16, 13 through 23. And then Jesus, verse 13, chapter 16 of Matthew, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some alive, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Uh-oh. Here we have a source of doctrine, a source of teaching, and it is men. Jesus said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Correct? They said, some say, thou art John the Baptist, Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So we can't, they can't tell, because sometimes you act like Jeremiah, sometimes you speak like Jeremiah, sometimes you weep like Jeremiah. Sometimes you preach like Elijah. Sometimes you sound like the prophets. But really, you know, as far as man is the opinion of Jesus as to who he is, it's what they were saying. Some said he's Jeremiah. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's one of the prophets. That's what men were saying. Okay? That's what they were teaching. Now let's keep going. Verse 15, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So here we have the second source of doctrine or teaching. And that is the Spirit of God. It is His revelation of Himself to man. In Jesus Christ and in His written Word, the Bible. That is God's doctrine. Okay? God's mind, God's thoughts, God's Word. But that's not the only source of doctrine. The Bible goes on and says, Verse 18, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and said and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So now we have a man that's being, that, that Satan is speaking through. So a source of teaching or doctrine here is Satan himself. 
So resources for doctrine. Man, what man is saying, dogma. Doctrine, the revelation of God to man. And then doctrines of devils. Satan speaking through men. Okay? Wow. Now, let's go over here and let's look at some scriptures. Uh, wow, I don't have time to get into all of these. But if it's from God, it'll be the doctrine of God. I'll give you some scriptures. You can write them down. Um, Isaiah, what was the first one we started with? Isaiah 55. Okay, 55, 9 through 11, right? Talks about the doctrine of God or the word of God. It's coming down from God, correct? If it's the doctrine of God, then you have Isaiah 55, the Old Testament talks about the teachings of God. Then you have the doctrine of Christ. He said, my doctrine. Jesus said, my doctrine. Well, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, he said, it's not mine, but him that sent me. So that's the doctrine of God. Ready? The doctrine of God, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is the doctrine of God. And then you have the apostles' doctrine. Acts 2.42, the apostles' doctrine is still God's doctrine, but it's doctrine through those men, those 12 apostles. That would be considered the doctrine of God. You have the doctrine of God, doctrine of Jesus Christ, same thing, doctrine of God, the apostles' doctrine. You can put that, I'm just saying, those three into that one category as God's divine revelation of himself to them. Okay? Praise the Lord. Now, you have the doctrines of men. One, one Jesus warned us of these. Matthew 15 and verse 9. Are you there? Now, if Jesus, there's, there's, okay, help me, Lord. Are you getting tired? Doctrines of men. There are some doctrines of men that Jesus particularly warned us against. If Jesus warns you about a doctrine of man, it is very important that you and I listen to that warning. Because he didn't spend all of his time going around uncovering and exposing the doctrines of men or the dogmas of men. Okay? He brought truth. Truth uncovered the error of the man. But there are specific doctrines that Jesus warned us against, teachings of men that he said, you stay away from. And one of them is the doctrine of the Pharisees. So let's look at Matthew 15. Praise the Lord. This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay? Matthew 16, 12. Okay, Jesus is in the process of the got loaves here in the, in the past anyway. Verse 11. How is it that you do not understand, this is 1611, that I spake it not to you concerning bread that you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right? He warned them against the leaven of the Pharisees. They it's not about literal bread that they, the Pharisees cooked. 
He said, and they, then they understood it was the teaching of the Pharisees. What is the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that Jesus warned against? Well, let's look at it. Matthew 23. What is that doctrine again? Okay, verse 1. Matthew 23, 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid ye observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So that the leaven of the Pharisees and the doctrines of the Pharisees is to have a knowledge of the word of God, but ye do not live it. It's having words with no life. And Jesus warned us against that uh, about just accumulation. See, they did. The Pharisees and the, and the sons of the Sadducees, they had a knowledge of the word of God to a point. False doctrine mixed in with it. But they did have a knowledge of the word of God. There were some of them you could see walking around. They had these big old turbans wrapped around their head. And depending on how much scripture you had memorized determined how big a hat you had. And they're walking around, man. Some of them had huge turbans. And those huge turbans were telling everybody, this man's got most of the Old Testament memorized. Some of them memorized the whole Old Testament. Before they were 13, before they were 13, memorized the first five books of the Bible and, and much of the Psalms. Before they were 13. So they had a a head knowledge of the word of God, but they didn't practice it. They didn't live it. And that's the that's a, a man-made doctrine, the leaven, the doctrine of the Pharisees, what Jesus is warning against here and that. He said, Don't do what they do. They say, but they don't do. They preach one thing, but they live another. They have a knowledge of the word of God, but they don't practice it. They have a theology. But they don't have religion. It's not applied in their life. Are you with me? So if Jesus warned me against that leaven, that doctrine of the Pharisees of having knowledge but no truth or, or living it, I better listen. Because that can get a hold of every one of us in this church. We can come to church and we get a knowledge of the Word of God and then the rest of the week just live like the world and not, not obey the Word of God. That is the leaven Okay, book of Revelation when we have time. Read Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we've already taught it to you before. What are some other doctrines that the Lord warned us against? Well, he warned us against the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam tried to hold on to two worlds and he lost both of them. You hear what I said? He tried to hold on to two worlds and lost both of them. There was a teaching. He taught, anyway, I mean, I don't we want to get into all these doctrines. But anyway, Jesus said, beware of the doctrine of Balaam in Revelation. He said, beware of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans also had this thought, you can live immoral and still be saved. Because what you do in your body doesn't affect your spirit. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said, stay away from the doctrine of Nicolaitans. And then we have also the doctrine of Jezebel. 
Jezebel's not a good lady. Jezebel was always trying to overthrow the prophets of God, trying to kill the prophets of God all the time. She hated the prophets of God, and she had a teaching. She mixed false religion into true religion called syncretism. Okay? So, if you have time, I showed you one. Have time to Revelation 2. You will see the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of Nicolaitis, the doctrine of Jezebel. Jesus specifically warned his church to stay away from those doctrines. Okay? Now, Jesus warned me. I'm going to listen to what he said. These are the doctrines of men. Jezebel mixing false religion into the true worship of God. Balaam. You understand? Trying to hold on to two worlds, lost both of them. Teaching Balak how to seduce the people of God uh, to commit fornication, spiritual fornication against God, to be unfaithful to God. Balak taught Balak how to teach the people of God how to be unfaithful to God. Committing spiritual adultery. Balak taught that. Nicolaitis said you can do whatever you want to in your body and it won't affect your spirit. That's what they believe. Jesus is staying away from those doctrines. And then we have Satan, the doctrine. I've already showed you that source of Satan. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. We'll go back over there. I'm almost done. You guys have been real good. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank God for helping me. My attention is impaired. All right, First Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. What? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, you have to be aware of the Spirit that's speaking to you. The way the devil works, the way he sows false doctrine, is he speaks through men who are deceived. That's where you get the cults from. That's where you get the isms, all these isms, and all these different groups from. It was Satan speaking into the minds of deceived men. And then those men teaching them. Somebody's teaching you it's coming from a source. It's either coming from God's divine revelation doctrine, it's coming from the doctrines of men which will mislead you, or it's coming from Satan himself. There's a source right? behind that thought, behind that idea, behind that word, behind what a person is saying, there is a belief. There is a doctrine, there is a teaching that they hold on to. And it's flowing out of them. Doesn't line up with the Word of God because this is the only fallible thing. That's not the Word. All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians 17. I'll give you the scriptures, write them down. 1 Corinthians 11, 4, Galatians 1, 6 through 8. You're familiar with these passages. The, the Bible of 2 Corinthians 11. Talks about while you're turning to Second Corinthians two seventeen, Second Corinthians eleven talks about the the ministers of unrighteousness. They disguise themselves 
there are men who disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, you know, basically, don't be surprised at that because Satan transformed himself into an angel of light. That means literally the word transform means Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. An angel of truth. What do you So there are ministers of unrighteousness. They disguise themselves as angels of light. That's in 11. We've got time to read it. And in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, Paul said this, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let them be accursed. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel than that which we have preached unto you. He said, let them be accursed. He said, if an angel comes down and stands right here in the middle of this church with his light glowing, and he preaches to you anything different from the apostles' doctrine, Paul said, let that angel be accursed. And any man that preaches anything different from the apostles' doctrine, let him be accursed. That's why I told you earlier, anybody comes to your door, knocks on your door, the Bible says in John, if they don't bring the doctrine of Christ, he said, if they don't bring the doctrine of Christ, which is that Jesus is God come in the flesh, if they don't bring that doctrine, he said, they bring another doctor. He said, you don't even bid them Godspeed. You don't say to them, be blessed. You don't say, have a good day. If they're presenting false doctrine to you and telling you that Jesus is not God, don't even say, have a blessed day. Don't wish them Godspeed. And he said, don't even let them in your house. That's what the Bible says. That's how serious it is. Because they are deceivers. They are used by the enemy to propagate false doctrine. Right? Galatians 1, 6 through 8, 2 Corinthians 11, 4, but the one I had to go to, 2 Corinthians 2, 17. Are you there? You see how important doctrine is. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, both, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul says we're not like those deceivers. We don't corrupt the word of God. You understand? Those deceivers, Galatians 1, 6 through 8, those deceivers, 2 Corinthians 11, and 4, 4, 4. But the Bible talks constantly about these deceivers. Jude warns against apostates and false teachers that would come in the last days. But Paul says, we're not like those that corrupt the word of God. I love it. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So all doctrine, remember this, all doctrine is going to come. When it comes, it's either going to be in the spirit of truth or it's going to be in the spirit of error. And we have to test everything by God's infallible word. Okay? We 
But sometimes my thinking might not be right. Your thinking might not be right. Your philosophy might, I don't know, what does God say? I mean, if you're going to be the spirit of truth, it's going to be the spirit of error. I want the spirit of truth. Okay? Do you understand that? When people come around you and they start talking to you, they sound real good. By their fair speeches, they deceive the simple. Symbols in the Word of God for doctrine is 11, Matthew 16, 5-12. I won't go back over there. 11, okay? Doctrine, symbol of doctrine is 11. Now, what is 11? Yeast, right? How many yeast are going to cook out there? If you put a little yeast in your dough, what's it do? But before it rises, what does it got to do? If you take a, how, much, how much yeast do you put? A little bit, Right? What does that little bit of yeast do to that loaf, that dough? It permeates throughout the bread itself or the dough itself, okay? And that's what leaven does. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You get a little bit of false doctrine, it can corrupt the whole loaf of bread. Just a little bit. Because it goes in and it permeates So leaven, Jesus talks about leaven, is a type of false doctrine. And what does false doctrine do? It corrupts the pure meal of the Word of God. Have you ever thought about this? That woman in the parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the Bible says she brings leaven and she leavens three She leavens the meal of God's word. And the numbers three. Let me get that. Brother Mark, can you help me find that real quick? Leaven is a type of false doctrine. Okay. It's worth my time. Matthew 13. A woman does it, right? A woman takes the leaven. You see that harlot right on the back of a scarlet colored beast in the book of Revelation? That's the woman. She's Mystery Babylon. She's a false church system. And what she does is she leavens the pure meal of God's Word. Okay, 13, what is the verse? 1333. You realize the seven parables of Jesus parallel the seven churches of the book of Revelation, right? When you have time, take time and count what parable this one is and then go and look at the seven churches of Revelation and that parallel that parable parallels that church. Okay? 1333. Another parable spake he unto them, take the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in what? Three measures of meal. The meal is the pure word of God. And this woman was a picture of false church, false religion in the Bible. She's a type of false religion and false church. She comes and she leavens the three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Three measures. Think about that. This woman, I don't have time to read all the details of this woman represents a false church that has 
brought false doctrine in the church. She has corrupted the pure truth of God's holy word in the area of three. And if I take time to go into the book of Revelation and find out who she is, I believe I have scripture support to back what I'm about to say up. That she has corrupted the doctrine of the oneness of God and said that he is a trinity of persons. The pure leaven of God's holy word has been corrupted by that woman. We believe in the manifestation, the three manifestations of one God. He's Father in creation, Son in redemption, and the Holy Ghost indwelling you and regenerating. Three manifestations of one God. I'll say it again. The Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Ghost indwelling you. The false doctrine of the woman church comes and corrupts that. He says, no, there's three separate persons in the Godhead. You don't understand who Jesus is. You won't even get baptized for it. Okay, so you wouldn't so far. So leaven is a symbol of doctrine, and it is the doctrine that leavens the pure word of God. And then we go on from there. When Ephesians 4 14. Ephesians 4 14. Somebody get it for me real fast. Ephesians 4 14. Is that where it says, Be not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? No? You guys better read it, please. Okay, so this doctrine he's talking about is uh, spoken by deceivers. And we're not to be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Whew. If doctrine is likened to the wind then, false doctrine in particular is likened to the wind, then we have to be like a tree. Like Psalm says in Psalm 1, we have to be a tree rooted. Because the wind, listen, if you're not rooted, these winds of false doctrine are going to come. They're going to come, they come to, they, they've come to my door. They've come to your door. They've come to, are y'all here today? And they're bringing these false doctrines. And if you're not rooted deep in God's word, those winds of false doctrine will blow you over. Only a deep-rooted tree can withstand the winds of false doctrine. You're planted by the rivers water. I am deeply rooted in the word. Well, when I preach to you, I preach the Word of God. I, 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 you know, sometimes maybe illustrate with a story here and there, but I want to tell you something. My call in, in life is to preach and teach God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. You understand what I'm saying? Because if I can do that, then all these false doctrines that come around you, knock on your door, whatever, but that's not true. How do you know? Because you've been taught the Word of God. You are deeply rooted in the earth. You understand? Is doctrine important? Because you got false doctrines all around you. And then, back um, into the rain, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Obviously, this particular one is God's word. It's a cycle, you know. And it, God it comes down from heaven from the Lord. It's given to us. It's like rain that comes down. It produces the budding of the 
but a disciple of God. So he comes down, he blesses you, causes your fields to bud. Disciple only returns back to God. Rain. What does rain do? It refreshes. What does rain do? It brings revival. What does rain do? It brings restoration to dry places. So God likens His, His Word coming down from the heavens, refreshing you, restoring you, sending revival. You understand the Word of the Lord. Those are symbols of, of doctrine. And real fast, I'm not going to read a lot more scripture for the second time. The doctrine must be sound. It must be pure. It must be scriptural. It's God breathed. It must be scriptural. It must be obeyed. But it's not obeyed. It's like the doctrine of the Pharisees. They have knowledge, but they don't do it. It, must, it, it determines character. It determine, and that character is what? Godliness. It does affect fellowship. Now, I do need to read that one because that one's sort of fresh. So let's go to 1 John 1, 1 through 7. Okay, it must be sound. It must be pure. It must be scriptural. That scripture is inspired of God. It must be obeyed. It determines character. affects fellowship, 1 John 1, 1 through 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest, we've seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that he unto you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested unto us that which was which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father with his Son Jesus Christ these things write we unto you that your joy may be full this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The measure or the, dec the degree that you and I can walk in fellowship together is determined by says, you can probably name this in the third chapter and continue on it. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is no. So my fellowship and your fellowship is based on the measure of my relationship and my fellowship with you is determined by the word of God. You see that? Acts 2.42, we are to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. Acts 2.42, so we know what doctrine that is. If I'm not continuing in that doctrine, then if you're not continuing in that doctrine, we have to break fellowship. If 
because what measures the fellowship that we have together is that we continue in that doctrine of the apostles. If you, if you, if you start believing or teaching something different from the doctrine of the apostles, we have to break fellowship with you. If you don't repent, we have no choice. determines destiny. Doctrine determines destiny. Your eternity hangs on this. Matthew 22, 42. There. Is this helping anybody this morning? I'll go to verse 41 here in context. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said, when the son of David. He said unto them, How did the David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies foot, thy footstool. He is, with that statement, declaring that he is God. He's not just a man, he is God. If David didn't call him Lord, how is he his son? Also, his Lord, and no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any question. Your eternal destiny depends on what think ye of Christ. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, the Son of David, humanity, Son of God, deity, the Lord of David, if you do not believe that. You will not be in heaven. You cannot go to heaven if you don't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. It is fundamental to your eternal destiny. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus uses that teaching, not just a man. He's David's Lord. He's David's Twenty-seven, twenty-two, Matthew. Remember what he said in the eighth chapter of John. He said, "Except you believe that I am, I am is Yahweh. Except you believe that I am, and He's in italics. I remember correctly. You don't believe that I am. You don't believe I am the eternal God. Ye shall die in your sins if you don't believe that He is." self-existent God the one who causes all things to be you don't believe that he is that you'll die in your sins what think you of Christ determines your destiny 27 22 Pilate said unto them what shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ, what do you do with him? They said, they all said to him, let him be crucified. But this is a critical question. First one is, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? The second critical question is, what shall I do then 
Jesus. What you and I do with Jesus Christ and who we think he is has eternal consequences. I spend so much time teaching you on the oneness of God, teaching you about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, because those things determine your eternal destiny. What they give Christ. And what shall I do with Jesus, which is called? Again. Doctrine must be also not just doctrine, but it has to have the right attitude with it. There are some people that say, okay, as long as my doctrine's right, my attitude can stink and I can be all right with God. And there's some people who say, well, as long as my attitude's right, it doesn't matter what my doctrine is. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus expects your attitude and your doctrine to be correct. First Corinthians 13 talks about the attitude we must have in this attitude as well. Have knowledge, all kinds of knowledge, and if you don't have love, you don't have Jesus. Okay, so praise the Lord. Um, you may remember where I read that where Jesus says, talks about this doctrine. If you don't, I can get it. I want to go back over and only look at it. See, I was in the sources of doctrine. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. See, it's not just knowing God's word, it's important. Okay? It's doing it. So you have not just a knowledge of the word of God, doctrine, but you have added, is your life right? Gratitude right. According to God. Can I be honest with you, Greg? Really, when this church goes through difficult times, you know most of the time it doesn't have to do with false doctrine. Very, very glad to ever have to correct this church here in false doctrine. This church walks in the truth. Where we miss it is attitude, attitude, attitude. If your doctrine doesn't affect your attitude, then you're not walking as a Christian. You're walking as a Pharisee. See, I can have the truth, but if I don't speak the truth in love, my motive's not right just to win the debate. That's not the purpose of God. It's not the purpose of having doctrine either to win the debate. Sometimes you need a debate. But that's not the purpose of it, so people might have a revelation of truth. But you have to have the right attitude. Love is our attitude. Love is God. And so I close. In Isaiah 28, 9 through 13, 
It is a progressive thing. It's come from God to us, doctrine. How do you learn the Word of God? How do you attain a knowledge of of God's revealed will to us? It's given to us here in the 28th chapter of Isaiah. 28, 9 through 13. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little. Your knowledge of God's word. Doctrine comes a little bit at a time. It's precept upon precept. It's here a little and there a little. It's line upon line. I never stop learning, and I don't think those of you who love the Word of God ever stop learning. We are learning all the time. This morning, another line upon line. Another precept upon a precept, a here, here a little and there a little. And that's the way God brought his revelation to man, his doctrine. The Old Testament, it doesn't cover 1,100 years. It covers much longer than that. What the old Bible study that we teach say? How long did it take? How far did it come into its history? 3,000 something. I think about 3,600. Let's see if the song is right. I think the Old Testament covers a period of time of 3,600. Yeah, that is correct. Because you've got 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, which were the silent years. So 4,000 from the creation to the coming of Jesus is 4,000 years. 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew, so 3,600 and 400. That's correct. Thirty. So the Old Testament covers 3,600 years of man's day. 400 silent years after that when Jesus comes. But it was written over a period of 1,100 years, beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses, 1,100 years of God bringing precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Progressive revelation from God for 1,100 years. But when Jesus comes into the world, in less than one century, in less than a hundred years, the New Testament is written. Because Jesus is the oracle of God. The, and when you say oracle, that simply means the speaking place of God. The oracle in the Old Testament was the Holy of Holies, the speaking place of God. This right here that's on this book right now that I preached to you from is the oracle of God. It's the speaking place of God. And when Jesus came into the world, he was the oracle of God. He was the speaking place of God. No wonder it only took a hundred years for the New Testament to be completed. No wonder Jesus came. So, let's go to Hebrews. 
Lord. How did it come? Line upon line. Precept, precept upon precept. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. 1,100 years of writing the Old Testament. Over 3,600 years of man's day. New Testament writers, less than 100 years. 39 books in the Old Testament, 20, 27 books in the New Testament. So a total of 66 books of God's holy revelation. And we don't have part of it this morning. We've got the whole world full of God. And if this is what is infallible, not a man, this book right here. Everything has to be measured by this book. Hebrews. God, sundry times, various ways, spoken in many, many times past, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son. What a great God. God, who is sundry times, Diverse manners, spaking times past, and the cause by the prophets hath in these last days spoken thus by Son, who be at the point of the air of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Various sundry times and diverse manners, various methods, prophecy, tabernacle, topology, various methods, sundry times. Prophets, but in these last days, spoken to us by His Son. He's the oracle of God. He's the place where God speaks. Yeah. He's the speaking place of God. And today, this word, this written word, is speaking place of God. Jesus Christ is the final revelation. Well, Pastor, I hear you sound something about God giving me a revelation. Really, revelation should be illumination. Revelation is God's self-disclosure of Himself. He really, one, one theologian says this way: God, the hidden God, and in one sense He's right. But the hidden God has revealed Himself to me. It's a self-revelation of God to Himself, to, to His people. Now, let me tell you something. You can know it. You can know you can know there's a God historically. He's the one who brought the plagues of Egypt. Abraham saw a vision of God. Isaiah saw a vision of God. It is something you can't know because God revealed it to you. And he gave it to us in his word. And so when I preach God's word, when I preach God's word, it is the oracle of God. So this is the first lesson that I'm preaching. And Lord willing, God helping me, we'll talk about revelation, we'll talk about illumination, we'll talk about some other things, and then we'll get into some of the, the systematic theology. Lord, we'll teach you on the nature of God. We'll teach you on angels. We'll teach you on demonology and sin and things like that, Lord willing. Okay? I'm looking forward to this so we begin a new year. I felt like the Lord impressed me a few weeks ago uh, that I need to focus on the prophecy. So that's what we're going to do. And as we 
do, I trust that nobody in this church will be deceived by false doctrine. And that you'll just grow and grow and grow as you experience the cycle of God's reign, refreshing, amen, revival, restoration, and times of drought in your life. Let's stand. Father, I thank you today for your grace and mercy. Thank you this morning. God, for inspiring me to teach and preach this message of doctrine. I thank you, Lord. I discern your presence inspiring me. I ask God that you help the people to understand what has been taught and what has been delivered to them today. They may grow by it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you're dismissed in the name of the Lord. God bless y'all. Thank you for your time.